Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tulsa World Opinion video podcast, whichever way you're viewing or listening to us. Thank you. I am Jenny Graham, the editorials editor at the Tulsa World. Bobby Set, editorial writer and columnist. And we've got a lot of heavy topics this week, so we're just going to dive in. Um, guns. It's what everyone's talking about. It's the, um, it's, we're in this cycle now, you know, and, yeah. and it's, it's bothered me. The, as a parent, you know, you just, you drop your kids off, you should be able to pick them up. And 19 pairs of families in Texas can't because an 18 year old shot his way past what three uh, officers at the school and killed 19 children and two adults. And it's heartbreaking. And I, I, you know, I wasn't sure. I think a lot of people, I don't know how you were. I, I just felt numb, but I have felt numb for 10 years. I, you know, I remember Sandy Hook and my daughter was five and it just devastated me. And I, I remember thinking at the time, surely something will happen now. You know, surely, you know, a classroom of first graders and nothing. So I, I, I'm not an anti-gun person. I don't believe in banning all weapons. I just feel like we need to start restricting them. I, I, after Sandy Hook, I shut down because of everything. I just thought nothing will happen. I got jaded and I became part of that middle, political middle that just turned silent. And we're back. And I just, I don't know if we can be silent anymore. So that was my first reaction. What about yeah. you? Well, I'm kind of like you. I figured after Sandy Hook and you're talking about, you know, 20 something, was it 20 first graders that got killed? It, or was it, it was 20 first graders at Sandy Hook and six adults. And that, that gunman again, it was a secured door. We talked about school security. He shot through the secured door. So right. this whole idea of bulking up security at campuses, that doesn't matter. It just, yeah, if a person is, is, is going to shoot up a school, they find a way in. So if they're determined, differently. Yeah, if they're determined, they'll make that happen. And if you look past Sandy Hook, I mean, we've had a, a couple more high schools get shot up you know, grocery stores, um, <clears throat> the Las Vegas shooting really stood out to me um, just because, you know, that the sheer volume of carnage uh, that occurred there, you know, dozens of deaths, hundreds of people injured at a concert, an outdoor concert, and it dropped off the radar screen within a couple of weeks. And it, it seemed like not only were, was there inaction, but in a lot of states, the gun laws got even looser. Now, the state of Texas has the, the dubious distinction of being the home state from a, a large collection of mass shootings um, that have you know, hit churches, hit schools, hit stores, uh, and an army base. And it's, this, it's just this incredible irony to me that within days of what happened in Uvalde, the NRA is going to meet in Houston. And they're going to be there. And the NRA is, is one of the chief, not the only one, but one of the chief lobbyist organizations that's pushed for loosened gun laws. 
and you're going to have all these people there. And because the former president plans on being there, there's going to be a secret service detail, good guys with guns, but they're not going to let you bring your guns to this thing. Right. They're restricting guns, to the NRA out of security. And yet, and it's not, you're right. It's not just the NRA. The, the NRA has its own problems, but there's a whole lot of other, yeah. uh, uh, you know, pro-gun. And, and like I said, I'm not anti-gun. I, I think if you're a law-abiding yeah. person and, you know, you've had training and you are doing what you should, what, yes, absolutely. But that's not what we're having in America. And this is a uniquely American problem. It is. And we're going to have to find what, what we're doing now is not working. And the the lift on the assault rifles, the assault ban, do you remember that? It, yeah, back in the Clinton days. It did days. make a difference. It did get worse. And I remember at the time, law enforcement was against it because they said, this is going to make it harder for us on the streets. We're going to, and it has been. But now what you see, you don't hear those voices. You, you see people sort of dancing around it because they don't want to say that because they don't want to lose some sort of political base. And I think for those of us in the middle who are saying, hey, we've got to go back to looking at, because there are things that, that can help. Age restrictions, you know, the 21, the required training. Why not have a license? I mean, if you're going to have certain weapons, you should at least know how to use the, the weapon. Um, you know, it's interesting. You had an interesting take on the, the age restriction, because the first yeah. thing you hear is, well, if a kid can go to war, they should be able to buy a gun. So so you you kind of work through through that what, what's your thought on that sure so my one quick caveat i'm a gun owner i've had guns since i was 21 years old and you know second amendment is the law of the land so let's just get that out of the way you're not talking to a, a gun grabber or anything like that here okay so when they make that argument here's the big difference when you go into the military First thing that happens when it comes to firearms is you are trained in their use. They are trained for a very specific use. And they are, in the military, heavily regulated. You don't have trainees and you don't have, you know, people out of training and at their posts, whatever. They're not bringing their rifle and their sidearms and, and whatever else with them back to their bunk or back to wherever base housing that they live in. Those things are stored in an armory. They're secured. The only people that you're going to see on a base regularly carrying a firearm is probably military security. The only exceptions to that is when there's going to be training that involves firearms, or if you're deployed, you're going to be carrying your firearm, whatever that might be. But it's going to be in a controlled situation. It's not the same thing as an 18-year-old going to a gun store buying a couple of AR-15s, slinging those things over the shoulder and going wherever, whether it's back home and locking it away in a gun safe or rolling up to a school and blasting a bunch of kids. I mean, that's something that we got to think about with that is, I mean, when you're talking about how there's, there's such, a, such a huge difference between life in the military and life in, in the civilian world, when it comes to firearms, as well as everything else. So no, that argument does not wash with me at all. Uh, we make it to where you have to be 21 to buy cigarettes, you gotta be 21 to buy booze. I would dare say that even with the situations where those two substances can be dangerous to you and even deadly if you overconsume, 
Um, I mean, let's be real here. The firearms intent uh, is to kill. And that's not something to be taken lightly. And I would, I always admonish people that before you even consider buying a firearm, you need to ask yourself a question. Am I ready to take a life? I don't think people are asking about that because most people are seeing firearms in a very glamorized, almost spiritual way. I don't think it's healthy. We don't have a very healthy relationship with firearms in this country. And I think that needs to change. Going back to your point about licensing and training. It is so hard to shoot accurately in the best of scenarios. You know, go on a gun range and I, I went through the licensing process at one point, and it's just under the best conditions when you're concentrating, when it's well lit, when there's no anxiety, and you still sometimes can't hit your target right. So a lot of people buy these weapons out of fear or whatever, and or anxiety of change, but they're not practicing, they're not getting training. So what happens if the worst does occur? A lot of people get shot with their own guns, or they're shooting they're going to shoot someone they know. I mean, because, you know, if you think you're getting, you know, broken into, you know, anxiety is high. And if you're not properly trained, then you're not even, it's going to be worse. And so there's just, it just seems like everything we do lately is out of fear and, and we're just not basing it on what's actually happening. It's a lot of what ifs. Mm. Well, there is no what ifs. What is happening right now is we're having, and they're not all mentally ill. That's another sort of kind of red herring out there. It's like, or distraction. Those, some of these people are, they don't have any diagnosed mental illness. They don't have any criminal record necessarily. So we need to figure out what's happening. Now, it doesn't mean they're mentally healthy. We ran a, a column today that that was well done. It was a researcher into this saying, you know, they're not doing well mentally, but they're not necessarily diagnosed with a mental health disorder and a lot of people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and those type of things are often victims so we have yeah. to get off of they're all mentally ill because they're not but here's the other thing is congress hasn't studied this 1996 there was a, a you know the gun lobby was very effective in it getting <clears throat> it banned congress from using any federal money to even study the issue of gun violence to even look into it like what what could be behind this and last year, that thought a little bit, there was 25 million, which is a paltry amount when you talk about the federal government, that was put toward the NIH uh, and uh, CDC to start looking at behind gun violence. So we need a lot more information, and we should be backing the idea of putting money into research to figure out what is happening, what laws are going. The, the one thing about the way that our country is working with gun laws is there's such a patchwork from state to state that mm -hmm. it, from what I understand, it's creating this sort of laboratory to see well, what is working and maybe what isn't working. But to just say, no, the second amendment gives you an absolute right. No, no rights are absolute. And I really hope the middle starts speaking up more and more because and, and I'm not going with this, oh, it just happened. We're all in trauma. Don't make, no, we're always in trauma. There is, I mean, it was 10 days since the last mass shooting and they haven't even planned all the funerals for that one. And we have another one. So at some point, no, now is the time to talk about it. And I, I just want to see someone, some leaders coming forward with something um, because doing nothing is just killing us. And it's, let's, it's on that note too, let's, 
let's just do away with the argument that says, well, if you do this, things are still going to happen. Well, we know that. We've got laws on the books to prevent theft. Theft still happens, but if you didn't have any laws, people would be robbing each other blind all the time. You know, we've got a lot of laws that are there to prevent things from happening. If you did something like universal background checks and raise the age limit to purchase firearms, is it going to stop all mass shootings? No. Is it going to stop some mass shootings? Probably. Man, right now, I'll take that. Just, just a little bit. I mean, let's, let's maybe take the edge off this just a little bit to where we're not every month or every three weeks watching another 10 or 12 or 20 people wearing a bullet as they're on their way to the graveyard. I mean, come on now. We got we to gotta start thinking about something. We can't just be entrenched in like, oh, that's just the way we live. So, oh, well. Well, there was a, a, a reporter, a colleague of ours that we talked about the Second Amendment. And he said, you know, the Constitution was never meant to be a suicide pact yeah. that, you know, to, to be constantly saying, hey, this is what our, fa- our founding fathers would not have wanted this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, the one and they didn't even agree on a lot of stuff either. I mean, we kind of were talking earlier that the one thing the, the founding fathers agreed on was they didn't like the British. But, but <laughs> certainly this document is not a pass to start shooting each other. So, you know, as we kind of go into the, the weekend and, you know, this very depressing week, it's just, it all just kind of seeing the kids, it all just sort of resurfaced for me, that Sandy Hook thing. And I was so, so hopeful. It's so depressed and hopeful after Sandy Hook that something would finally be done to bring this down. You're right. It's not going to eliminate it, but let's bring it down to where it's just not our norm. And it didn't, it ramped it up and it's just enough. So, you know, but, but moving into the next heavy topic, sex abuse, the uh, Southern Baptist convention uh, released a report. I didn't read the report you did and you're writing about it this weekend, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm Catholic and you know, our church kind of went through that whole thing, but there are some parallels between what's happened, which is basically an institution wanting to protect its power and protect its image over what's doing what's right, you know, by not calling police, by not notifying people. So, you know, without giving away what you're writing, I mean, what, what kind of, you read the whole report, what stood out for you? Ooh, yeah, this is a heavy one because, um, the Southern Baptist Church is just just to set the stage a little bit. The Southern Baptist Convention is organized a lot differently than a lot of uh, Protestant churches and the Catholic Church. It's, there's not a big uh, hierarchy where you've got people in Nashville at SBC headquarters telling you, "Well, this is going to be your preacher and this is policy and stuff like that." Each congregation is independent and autonomous. So that kind of makes governance um, tricky, difficult, you know, because, you know, you just don't know. It could be a giant mega church in Dallas, Fort Worth. It could be the little country hill church, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, All of them are autonomous. However, there are parallels to what happened with the SBC and what you saw happen in the Catholic church 
where you have ministers, you know, trusted people, uh, spiritual authorities, that kind of stuff, who were abusers, um, sometimes to children, sometimes to adults, sometimes to uh, college and seminary students who were, uh, were under them. There was a pattern of kind of brushing aside, keeping quiet controversies to the point where you had some of these bad ministers able to travel from church to church and nobody knew any different until it was too late. You had other examples in, uh, at at least one seminary, maybe two, but for sure one seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, where the president had told, president of the seminary had told two different students not to report a rape on campus. All of this basically to protect the institution. Now, survivors of these abuses have been coming forward to say, we need to do something about this. We can't just sit on this despite our, our quirky little governance issue. And they have been very, very persistent to the point where one minister had suggested, uh, he's actually a guy running for Congress right now, Wade Burleson, had suggested uh, putting together a database of these uh, abusive pastors or abusive ministers so people could check that when they're thinking about calling someone in the ministry or something like that. And that actually got uh, brushed aside, even though the convention uh, the, the hierarchy is a little difficult to say, but we'll just say some higher ranking people within the national convention sort of on the sly on their own was keeping track. They had records. They didn't do anything with it. On the good side, there were some uh, leaders within the convention, some pastors and some people all the way up to the past president of uh, the SBC we're very insistent that, no, we need to do something about this. We need to have an independent third-party investigation. And when those results come out, we need to eat that and do something about it. So the report that came out last Sunday is the product of that investigation. Heartbreaking stories. Um, you know what? You would think that after seeing what the Catholic Church went through, that they would have learned something. Like, look across the eye, you know, what, that's what baffles me, are churches or, you know, it doesn't matter, and this, you know, it happens, it, it's happening. So why, you know, having seen this play out, why, I mean, is, is I guess, power just that? Part of this is. <laughs> what, why would you do something when you know what the end result's going to be? From the local church's standpoint, if they have a controversy like this, a scandal like this erupt, it can be having that bad publicity can be bad for the church as if that outweighs what was bad for the victim. But you know what I mean? Right. Um, I mean, so yes, you're going to have it's going to look bad and people are going to yeah, ask you, why, but then they might leave and they might not donate on the national level. Um a lot of people were using two things to protect themselves or try to protect the national organization is one, we don't want to get everybody upset and stop giving to what was called the cooperative program. The cooperative program funds a lot of missionary activity here in the United States and in Canada and then all over the world. They're saying we're going to hurt the missionary evangelistic cause 
if this becomes public. But they also use the shield of the autonomy of the local churches to say, not a problem. You know, that's something that they got to deal with at the local level. That's not on us. The problem with that is if you report a problem at your local church and your church doesn't do anything, you may take it to the state convention and they say, oh, autonomy of local church, not our problem. And then you take it to the national level where you think maybe somebody with some stroke will deal with it. And they say, well, it's kind of a local church problem. It's not our deal where our hands are tied. It just kind of made it easy to do cover-ups like it this. just baffled and, but it still goes back to they're doing this willfully yeah. and you know what's uh, you've seen this play out in a different you know christian faith and and i don't know maybe maybe now the next time something happens and a child is abused they'll actually call there's this real reluctance to call the police i've noticed um, yes, and, yes. And these and, have come up in other churches too, you know, locally, that that's usually the first thing. They don't call the police. They don't want to get people involved. We'll handle it internally. Well, you're not an investigator. You're not a child psychologist. So, And we've seen instances of the stuff like that happen here in Tulsa yeah. at, at different churches, some of them pretty big. Um, one other very interesting common ground thing that you see with the Catholic clergy, sex abuse stuff, and what's happened at the SBC. The victims were insistent, but it got blown open by a very similar institution. One of the biggest cover-ups here in the United States happened in Boston. And the entity that blew that open was the Boston Globe and their investigation. In this one, it was the same kind of deal. There was a lot of people you know, being very insistent, being very public, you know, trying to get in touch with the media. But the Houston Chronicle did a, a ser an investigative series on what was going on at Southern Baptist churches. When that series came out, that blew this open. That is what got it in front of the national organization, as well as all of the delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention. They call them messengers to when they wanted to bring up doing a third-party investigation, even with the pushback that they were getting at the highest level, the messengers were like, nope, we are doing this. We are going to do this investigation. We're going to get it all out in, in the open, and we're going to try to fix this. So power of the free press. Yeah. A lot of times we are the ones that end up sticking up for these folks because i mean how powerless must these victims feel at times and have felt at these times and we're talking going back 20 years yeah they've carried I mean, this yeah i mean you just have to exactly and some of these they they're now adults and they're having to and they've been really living this so yeah, yeah it's but anyway it's, it's a it's good it should be i mean it's a good column you've written, a good series the Houston Chronicle wrote. It's not necessarily a good story, but it is good that we are getting these problems out in the light. Yep. And, uh, and speaking of problems, our legislature is finally <laughs> winding down. Uh, yeah, well, there's, they're not officially, you know, adjourned because of the sh uh, shenanigans, as I call the the, the legislature, but the legislature kept itself open so they could deal with the ARPA funds uh, that they took control of those funds from the governor um, last week. So they're going, so they are open to come back into session to deal with that. 
But they did the, and I haven't seen the headlines in the last, you know, two hours, so things could change. But the legislature passed a budget last week, and it was a $698 million, is that right? No, $9.8 billion budget. And it had quite a few winners in there, honestly. I mean, it had pretty much every agency came out ahead. Um, higher ed got, you know, a, a bump, and that included $17 million to incentivize students to become teachers. The Highway Patrol troopers would get a 30% raise. But there's one big loser. Yep. Public education. What a uh, letdown yeah. that was. And this is in a budget that had that carved out seven hundred million to lure Panasonic here. So public ed, and you'll hear lawmakers say this. Well, they get they, they make up the bulk of the budget. True, but they're still lagging in the region and the in the nation. And we're like 46, 47th in per pupil expenditure. But where everybody got like five percent bumps up to you know more. The uh, public education got a 0.5, less than a 1% increase, but most of that is line itemed out. So it's not going into the general fund or the this funding formula, which would then go down. There were things in there like DNA tests. So parents that are worried about your kid being kidnapped can get a DNA test to have on file. So when their kids are kidnapped, they can give that to the police. Okay. Not going to minimize that if you're truly worried about that, but your kid is going to be in an overcrowded classroom with stressed teachers and, and, and inexperienced or completely not qualified teachers. So that 0.5% is also being eaten up by inflation, which what's inflation predicted? What is it at now, Bob? Like, uh, like 8%. Eight, 7 or 8%. Yep. And, and what got me was that earlier in the session, they, we had this voucher bill that was highly contested that the lawmakers, 22 senators and the governor, were willing to give $161 million to go to private schools. So we can, right? So they can come up with $161 million for private schools, but only $17 million for public schools. But we have like 90% of our Oklahoma kids going to public schools. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand it. I, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, my kids go to public school. My husband teaches at a public school. I'm a product of that. So I am coming from that end. And I think private schools for some kids are great. And I believe in charter schools. I believe in options, but I just don't understand the thinking of these vouchers. I just don't see how that improves public schools. Instead of taking that 161 million and taking it into private schools, take it into the public schools. Let them really do some improvements that we need. That would be amazing to get where we need to be, but it's just not happening. And teachers are getting really, yeah, their the morale is pretty low. Yeah, they're 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 getting a little threadbare on what more they can take. Yeah, it's it's um the rhetoric has really got to change and, and the priorities have got to change. So every of those 22 senators and that, and the governor, they're saying, they're showing where the price, now the governor hasn't approved this budget, I will say. That's what we're waiting on to see if he'll actually approve it or veto it. But those 22 senators certainly have shown where the priorities are, at least. But I hope the um, lawmakers can turn that around. Um, but reminder. I will give props. 
to, okay. and this is a non, but well, yeah, it's a non-vegetarian item, but uh, we're, we're writing an editorial saying that I think it was Senate bill 4106. It was either a Senate bill or a house bill. It was a house bill, sorry, 4106 by uh, Mark Van Curen. And this would help. It's a very first step that instructs school districts and the mental health providers in a community get together and have a protocol for when a kid is in crisis. Now, most districts have this, but some districts don't. And there's also still these silos between, you know, around the community providers. So, you know, kudos for making a, a step, but we need to get licensed counselors, licensed social workers into the schools. They don't need to be school employees. I really just am hoping that we can get more access because this bill doesn't broaden access or anything like that. But that this is a first step. So I'll, I'll give credit for that. So um, did anything else to stick out in your mind from this past session or in the budget that... You know, I think uh, when I look at the the budget process and everything like that and, and what we put into it, I see it as lost opportunity. Uh, I've been the, been the advocate to be fiscally responsible so you're not like throwing every bit of new revenue at your favorite department or education or your cause or whatever. But I think given the, the large revenue surpluses we had, a piece of that could have been and should have been allocated to common education to start working on things like bringing down class sizes, maybe helping teacher pay some more, maybe more with their benefits, uh, maybe a little bit more to help do things like supplies and such like that. Teachers could use a little bit of a lighter hand in terms of regulation from the legislature. Seems like they got their hands all over everything that they do all the time. And teachers just want to teach. They want to be able to teach the material so kids know their subjects. Well, we missed an opportunity of, on this. Well, speaking of, you know, they're talking about the that old chestnut of let's just put guns in the hands of teachers. Oh boy. That's come back up. That's I can't think of a worse idea. I just cannot. I cannot, I would not allow my child to go into a classroom where the teacher is armed. I just, I would not. I just, there's so many things that could go wrong, but, um, but we do, yeah. we do have a lot of, uh, we have several op-eds this, this weekend that I think are fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just going to kind of promote them a little bit that we have one from uh, Mike Bros, who is the former CEO, executive director of the mental health Oklahoma who he actually transformed that nonprofit into what it is today. But he's talking about homelessness and he's addressing kind of what we've talked about before is that small segment of people who are on the streets that um, are not getting helped. And he addresses that criminalizing that, you know, bringing police in to sort of arrest them, move them on is not the answer. But he gets a little bit more into that. Uh, we have a... Um, a profile, or as, as before, before that, uh, I think this was a this is a fantastic op-ed. It's written by the um, uh, Osage Nation Assistant Principal Chief Raymond Redcorn, and he is on our community advisory board. And he writes about sort of the release of the Killers of the Flower Moon and how the citizens are viewing it. <coughs> Excuse me. And he has a great opener that I just won't give away because it's just too good. 
It's just kind of puts you in the mindset of how things were in, in the nation when they were being murdered for their property. So yeah, that was a heck I of mean, a it's, it's you talk about Oklahoma history, man, that book's really, really good. And that's a, it's going to be big when that movie comes out. And the last thing we have is Mike LaPaula, who's involved in the Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame. He writes a profile on Lieutenant General Raymond McLean, which is what McLean High School is named after, who McLean named after. And a lot of people, he kind of pitched this to me saying, you know, everyone knows who Thomas Edison is, Edison High School. Everyone knows Booker T. Washington or Booker T. And he goes, no one knows who Raymond McLean is. So he's taking this opportunity to introduce everyone to Raymond McLean. And uh, anyway, that also gets into Memorial Day. We get mm -hmm. a day off. Do you have big plans? Uh, I think we're going to hang out with some fam a little bit and uh, celebrate a birthday or two. And not mine, but celebrate a birthday or two. And, you know, it'll probably be kind of mellow because I just put uh, half a tank of gas into the old car and 409 a gallon. I don't really feel like driving anywhere right now. But um, yeah. But you, you wrote, you kind of took the lead on the Memorial Day editorial that we have this weekend. And yeah, um, you know, what sort of, when you're putting that together, every time we write an editorial about, on behalf of the board, uh, sort of recognizing a day or the significance of about a holiday, uh, you know, you have to sort of get in a certain mind, mindset. So how, yeah. what mindset did you get into to write that editorial? You know, it was a couple of things because I don't like to get real preachy and, and things like that. We, if you don't know by now why we not celebrate but commemorate Memorial Day, then I think you've been living under a rock. But it's still a good reminder because it's not, it's not like a happy Fourth of July, you know, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day type of thing. Memorial Day is pretty somber. I mean, we're talking about a day to remember and honor a those who were killed in, uh, in combat, our military fallen. And when you look back at the totality of it and how hard it was for people to endure what they endured in these various wars for, you know, centuries, it, it is, it is somber. It is sobering. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to say more than just put, you know, put out your flag hand over your heart kind of thing. Um, there's a couple things out there right now that could be done to help uh, current active duty military as well as some of our veterans. So I was doing a little looking around for some things like that. And I remember uh, John Stewart's been just a huge, the comedian used to do the Daily Show and all that. He's been a huge advocate for for military veterans uh, as well as 9-11 survivors and first responders and stuff like that. He gets it. And he had mentioned this one bill called the Veterans Burn Pits Exposure Recognition Act, where going back to the Persian Gulf War, 1990-91, through today, uh, a lot of veterans have been exposed to these burn pits that have uh, some pretty toxic uh, elements in them and have gotten very sick, but they don't get the help they need from that. That's something that right now has been introduced in the Senate. Um, it would be nice to see people take a look at that bill and write their congressmen and senators and say, hey, let's do right by these guys. These are the guys that 
spent, you know, umpteen years in Iraq and 20, 21 years in Afghanistan, uh, they're still suffering for what they did for us. And then something else that came up when I was, uh, I was at a, a local brewery with some friends and this one gal who's, uh, uh, her daughter is a submariner based out of the Seattle area. And she was noting how serious that suicidal ideation had become for a lot of people on her boat. And this has become a big problem at a lot of military installations across the country. Um, not just suicidal ideation, but suicide. Uh, military suicides has become a, a crisis. You're talking going back to 9-11, more than 30,000 active duty and veterans have taken their own lives. That's just astounding. It is a staggering That's number. That's like the number of people that died in the Korean War. That's what we've lost to that. And there's a whole lot of causes for that. There is also legislation um, that's uh, Senate Bill 2811, the Military Suicide Prevention of the 21st Century Act. It's also been introduced in the Senate. It's not like the other bill I mentioned, it hasn't really advanced very far. But these are the types of things that we can say, hey, Mr. Congressman, hey, Mr. Senator, this is good legislation. This should be something that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. Let's get this done. Let's help these guys because they are the ones that have sacrificed a lot, more than us civilian people could ever know, the things that they've seen, the things that they've done and suffered through. And then, of course, the people that don't come home alive. Um, I think being supportive of legislation like this is a way to honor them because they've sacrificed a lot sometimes to the ultimate, we got to keep that in mind. So, you know, yeah, well, we have I want to say I'm not sounding preachy and I'm sounding preachy. Sorry about that. Well, no, it's, a, you know, we're, we have to, re, you know, we're a nation of, of a volunteer military and that's pretty yeah. unusual in the world. We don't have the conscription and, and because people do step up to do this very difficult life, you know, life or death job that yes mm -hmm. i think that we we need to do that and i'm that suicide number is is, is startling to me so um so yes we but we still need to put our flag out we still need to yeah you know remember why we had the day off and uh and i do hope everybody has a good weekend mm -hmm. and maybe next week things won't be so depressing and heavy so that's my hope <laughs> me, <laughs> we can too. Always hope. me too all right take care everybody the uh...